Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today in the studio with Kevin Farrell, our producer, and my good buddy from up in Oxford, Mr. Neil White. Hello, Neil. Hey, Malcolm. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Neil is the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, In the Sanctuary of Outcast. He won the Outstanding Author of the Year from the Southeastern Library Association and was recognized by Barnes & Noble in their Discover Great New Writers program. Neil serves as the editor, has served as the editor of Mississippians, Mississippi's 100 Great Football Players, Robert Kayat's The Education of a Lifetime. And his latest editorial project is Stories from 150 Years of Ole Miss Football. He also serves as the creative director and publisher at the Nautilus Publishing Company in Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome, Neil White. Thanks, Malcolm. Glad to be here. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Gulfport and Oxford. Uh, I was born in Gulfport. My father was in law school, and so I moved up to married student housing immediately and then uh, spent most of my uh, formative years in Gulfport, but always was going to Oxford football games, went to school there, lived there afterwards and published a newspaper and have lived there for the last 26 years. So I claim Gulfport and Oxford both as home. Well, you and I have parallel experiences since I grew up in Perkingston yeah, and then moved know it to well. Boonville. <laughs> so exactly. We, we both went coast, north, yeah. and then back and forth. But, let's see, now, didn't you publish uh, a magazine in on the coast at one time? Yeah, too? Coast Magazine. Coast, coast Magazine. Coast yeah. Magazine, Coast Business Journal. Sure yeah. did. So tell us a little bit about Nautilus, your your primary business uh, today, Nautilus Publishing. Tell us a little bit about that business and what you do. Yeah, we uh, we were a magazine publishing uh, firm for a long time. We we did magazines for hospitals, for organizations. It was kind of a custom publishing mm-hmm. operation. Not many people would have seen what we published because it was for clients, and. Uh, that was when, and one of them was tied to uh, state student loans. I won't go into it a lot, but it disappeared, uh, and and I had to sort of reinvent the company, and I had just published in two thousand nine uh, in the Sanctuary of Outcast. So I got into the book business right when everybody was getting out of the book business. <laughs> and <laughs> sound like me and some of my enterprises. Yeah, yeah. So, Ugh. but but you know, it, it's sort of that gambler's story. If you do one and it works, you go, oh, this is easy. So the first book we did was called Mississippians. It was a coffee table book that just featured the remarkable people who have come from this state. The photographs. Yeah, little little, little write-ups. It's a coffee table book, but just to give people sort of you can flip through and you go, oh, my God. You know, California, uh, New York, Florida. Let's let's compare here. We'll we'll do fine. We'll put Mississippi up against (laughs) any of y'all. That's right. And so – you know, we sold 9,000 copies of that book in a year, and I was like, boy, this is going to be it's easy. It's going to be easy. And it's never been the same since then. <laughs> All right, that was followed up uh, by which book? That was followed up by uh, Mississippi's 100 Greatest Football Players. The Football Players. Yeah. One. Yeah. So now you're a... You're an, uh, a sports enthusiast. Did you play sports? Well, because uh, a lot of your books seem to be 
tilting that way. Well, I'm I'm enthusiastic about stories, uh-huh. and and you know I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Some of the greatest stories take place in those kinds of settings: the boxing uh, ring, or the football field, or the courtroom, or the therapist <laughs> office, or the jail. And so, uh, you know, sports. If if you dig deep enough, you don't even have to be a football fan. They're just pretty remarkable stories, and mm-hmm. that's what this last book is too. And your memoir, Outcast, what year was that published? It was published in 2009. Oh, okay. I thought you said that's when Nautilus began. No, we, we, I had been, uh, I moved uh, to Oxford in 1994 from Carville, Louisiana, where mm-hmm. I was, uh, that took that book. So it was 15 years later that, that that book came out. And I started Nautilus right away. So let's just for a minute, let's talk about uh, Outcast because yeah. it was enormously famous. I mean, it became. A, a New York Times bestseller. I mean, wow. Not, first book. Sure, yeah, well, I didn't expect it, especially since it was really about lepers. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but it did do really well. And who was your publisher? HarperCollins. Oh, you. so you were with one of the big boys. Yeah. And have you followed that up with uh, – now, I think the movie rights may have been optioned. Am I right about yeah, that? They, they were optioned and then sold yeah, to a guy named Stratton Leopold, nice fella, uh-huh. uh, a Hollywood guy but from Savannah, Georgia, really uh, southern guy, knows the sensibilities, appreciates it. No news there, uh, but but yeah. But but yeah. you, you cash the check. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. – uh, so you wrote that book, but but after that, you've really been focused more on publishing and, and collaborating with, with these projects. Right? That's right. Yeah. You know, that book, uh, I knew that I, that was what inspired me to learn how to write creative nonfiction, to really hone my craft, because I had that one story that was so remarkable. Mm-hmm. It was such a strange convergence of cultures, and uh, it took me 15 years. I, I wondered why somebody else didn't do it first. But... Um, you know, that was the one book that I felt like I had to write. I write essays and I've written some plays. But since then, I've really worked with other people helping them publish their stories and craft their stories. Robert Kayat, for example, Marianne Connell, and then uh, have compiled and edited a number of books as well. So I don't, I won't start another book project until I feel as uh, compelled and inspired as I did about that one. And I don't hope that I have that kind of experience again no, anytime no, soon. No, so, yeah. not, I mean, even a great book probably wouldn't no, be worth no, going no. through such an experience. No. So let's touch on each of, of the books. Let's talk about Robert Kayat's book. Kayat sure. uh, uh, was chancellor at Ole Miss. And um, I guess this is, is this his memoir? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. His story. Yeah. And uh, I grew growing up in Perkinston. Uh, my father worked for the college, and he and Robert Kayette's father were great friends, as well as Eddie, his, his brother, who was a football player, who right. played football for my father. You're kidding. At Perkinston Junior College. Wow. So we knew the Kayettes growing up, and and I was delighted when uh, when Robert Kayette became chancellor at Ole Miss. So tell me a little bit about that experience. Well, Robert was interested in writing this book. And, it, it, you know, a lot of people are interested in writing their memoirs, but they don't really know what they're getting into until they dig into it. And this is what I, I, I learned in that 15 years of training. Robert came into my office and he said, I want to write my memoir, but I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to talk about my father's fall. And I don't want to talk about any bad news. And I basically said, we, we don't have a book. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sorry. And, yeah. But we we met every day for about six months, and he really started to get it. At first, he was writing some press release, very positive stuff. And I would notice a line in there and say, this is really interesting. And he would say, 
well, here's what really happened. <laughs> and he, and he, then I'd say, would you mind going to write that? And he would go back and write it. I mean, I know why his football coaches loved him. Whatever I asked him to do, he would do. Right. And in the one of the most surreal moments of my life, he actually asked me about three months into it if he could have a day off, which <laughs> was asking for permission. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. But by the end of it, Robert was writing these remarkably uh, difficult uh, stories where he was so vulnerable and and so truthful that people really loved it. I mean, people, uh, we sold a ton of those books too, but more than that, people have just said, this, I thought your life was so easy. I am mm. so sorry. Thank you for telling me what you went through. For sharing. Yeah. Yeah. And he also, uh, speaking of his brother, Eddie, who was a professional football player and a coach, in fact, was head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. That's and, right. But but Robert had a foot, professional football career. He did. He he, did. he was a kicker. He I was think? a kicker for uh, the Washington Redskins. So good, in fact, that he was uh, he was second runner up in Rookie of the Year and second most votes in Most Valuable Player in the NFL that 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 rookie season. Oh my god! Yeah. Interesting story. I don't want to. I'm working on another book with Robert right now that's that's going to end with this scene. But he was selected to the Pro Bowl, and he kicked off. And I don't remember the name of the player. He'll tell you this in the book, but came and speared him right in the the sternum with his with his helmet, and it damaged. He he had to almost crawl off the field, and that set off this uh, attack of pancreatitis that almost killed him. He lost. 80, 90 pounds in the hospital. They thought he was going to die, and he never recovered again. He went back and played, but was never mm -hmm. quite the same. But that that one, you know, just crossroads second. second changed everything for him. Wow, that's great. Well, so I look forward certainly to to that book. It's called Sixty. Sixty. Okay. It's, it, that was his number, was and that's his, number, his yeah. that was his year. So it's all about his professional well, football the, career, or just the, leading the, from that moment. The frame is uh, when they won the, the Sugar Bowl in January first, nineteen sixty, until this event, and we flash forward and back. But it's basically that year, nineteen sixty, and the things that happened. He went from four years losing three games to losing sixteen games, including preseason that first season mm -hmm. with the Redskins. They were the only segregated NFL team at the time. I mean, really remarkable time and place. He was in D.C. when JFK was coming up. Wow. So really, it's really going to be a great book. Well, great. So so that's the, the education of a lifetime. And then you've got this book of uh, of quotes. Which <laughs> I, I have a copy of it on my desk, and I refer to it all the time, written by David Cruz. Yes. From Oxford. That's right. And uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, David Cruz, if any of you know him, he, he was one of the boys of spring right. with uh, with William Winter. And just uh, he is such a gung-ho guy. He runs marathons. He's climbed mountains that nobody's climbed a without oxygen before. Man. And, and but a student of literature. And he came into my office about three years ago. And he had metaphorical handcuffs on this file folder of his. He said, I have an idea I want to talk to you about, but I don't want anybody else to do it before I do. And it was uh, that he had been collecting these quotes from books and writers and Mississippians for 20 years and uh, had divided them into categories. He had three times as many that were in the book. And uh, it's been wildly popular. And, and he has as you would want your authors to be, just as aggressive and going and speaking about this book. So we're about to go back into the third printing. So uh, really a great book. He's been a great marketer. Yes, he has uh, been. Because yeah. David is just a can-do uh, juggernaut of a, of a positive spirit, and he's out there 
uh, pr- promoting the heck out of it. Now, this other educational book, The A-Gang, tell me a little bit about that because we were just touching on it before we went on the air. Yeah, there's a there's a psychology professor named Ken Sufka uh, from Oxford, and he took a sabbatical to do a pamphlet to help his students who were failing his psychology course. And uh, it, it ended up being more than a pamphlet. And he emailed me and said, I have a, I have a book idea. And so I went and met with him. Uh, the title, and this is something a publisher does, uh, the title of the book, the working title was uh, Don't Shoot Your Mama, How to Get Your A-Game On. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, said, and then he told me about it and said, this is a great concept, but we're going to work on that title. <laughs> and so we developed this um, little book called The A-Game, and it's nine steps to better grades. And it, and it helps students learn at the college level who might have done well in high school. And uh, and over the seven or eight years, we sold a lot of copies, and a lot of a lot of universities put it in the hands of every freshman. You were telling me that some universities buy it in bulk and, and give a copy to every incoming freshman in their, uh, that, in their yeah, university. Yeah, Oregon, Washington State, UNLV, Ole Miss. A lot of the, I was hoping yeah, Ole Miss yeah, would yeah, since you're there yeah, on the square. Yeah. <laughs> this is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I'm also the director of your Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio today with me is my old buddy, Mr. Neil White. Hello, Neil. Hey, Malcolm. Glad you're here. You're in town for the book festival. I am. And you're on a panel. I am. And uh, tell me about your panel. I mean, just touch on what you, what your activity, and then I'll share a little bit of mine, then we'll move on to, it's, to your uh, books. The, the panel is called For Love of the Game, and it's a sports panel. Uh-huh. Uh, Wright Thompson is on that. ESPN. His, that's right. right. He, he also lives in Oxford, right? He lives in Oxford, and I'm telling you, he's one of the best living sports writers, in my opinion, in the country. His, yes, his, right. his long-form sports writing is, is second to none. Uh, Jim Weatherly and, and uh, uh, Jeff Robertson are supposed to be there for for their book, uh, Jimmy's uh, Jimmy's book on on the you know his being a quarterback yeah. and a songwriter, and then there's a an Eastern European woman on the the panel. I don't know her name, but she's fallen in love with football and written a book about it. My goodness! So uh, and and I think it's actually American football. So <laughs> we'll see. That's great. That's great. And uh, so so you're here. Uh, as a publisher, yeah, well, are you, you know, talking I'm, about that no, end of it or the I'm, writing end of I'm it? I'm actually uh, I served as editor of this book that I published, uh, which I do on occasion, called "Stories from 125 Years of Ole Miss Football." This is the 125th anniversary, and um, I talked to the university about doing a commemorative book, but I didn't want to rehash the same old stories. Yeah. So we decided there's so many people still alive who were here in the in the 40s, widows, children who who were firsthand eyewitnesses to this stuff. So we um, I got I got Rick Cleveland and and Billy Watkins and a few other folks who you know nice guys to no, uh, yeah. to help me with Not this. Not bad. Yeah, and we uh, we said okay, let's go talk to these people. And the first question is, 
tell us something most people don't know. Mm. And it was great. We couldn't publish all of it, obviously, but uh, <laughs> but the, the it, it's really a, a compelling book. And it's it's just stories, human interest stories, not even necessarily football. Right. And this book is out now? It is. It is on sale as of the book festival okay. on the 17th. Yes. Right. And this is a Nautilus book. It is a Nautilus book. And you serve as the both publisher and editor? Is I that right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you're... You're writer, editor, and publisher. We we do it all. We're a small operation. <laughs> I, I also run the warehouse unit. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I load books. I, I I put UPS labels on. I do everything. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the other Mississippi. Uh, the last book by Dr. David Sansing. Had yeah. you published David before? We had. We had, we had published uh, two of other uh, David's books. One was a was a smaller uh, book on higher education and the history in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. But the big book we published for the bicentennial of the state was called um, uh, Mississippi Governors. I don't get this right. It is soldiers, uh, statesmen, uh, scholars and scoundrels. Right. <laughs> Great title. Yeah. Now, that was one that didn't need to be lengthened. I mean, shortened. That's right. That, that one yeah. needed to be. In, yeah, lengthened. In Ab absolutely. So we lost David, um, gee, just a handful of months ago. Yeah. He passed. He sure did. And just as this book was coming out, The Other Mississippi. Now, this is a collection of his writings, it correct? Is. It is. It's, and it's speeches and lectures. Essay, speeches, uh, eulogies, you name it. it it's his, he handpicked what he thought was the best of his writing for his remarkable lifetime, and we compiled it. So I'm going to ask you to tell our listeners who David Sansing is, and then I'm going to follow up on who, who David Sansing was to me. Well, to everyone else, David Sansing was was the greatest living historian uh, in Mississippi who focused on Mississippi history. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He He loved everything about this state. He embraced the complexity of this state, but I was friends with him. I know you were friends with him, too. And he he studied to be uh, a, a minister, a pastor. Uh, he was of the Baptist faith. Went to MC. He sure did, <laughs> but was also uh, and, and as nonjudgmental and as inclusive as anybody I've ever seen. He He's what you would want uh, a man of the cloth or a woman of the cloth to be. And uh, we were just, he, and he was just an enthusiastic guy. He would come in with this book and he would flip through the pages and go, you know what? This is my favorite chapter. And then he'd tell me about it. And we'd get to the next one. He said, you know, I think this is my favorite chapter. He was like a kid. It was right, wonderful. Right, and, right. and I mean, and that, and the most compliment. would just light up. Yes. Like yes. little Christmas lights. Yes. Well, I grew up in, in Perkinston, as I said earlier, and, uh, David Sansing, uh, uh, after he got his uh, master's degree and was, I believe, working on his Ph.D. at night, driving up to Southern, to Hattiesburg, uh, applied for a job teaching history at Perkinson Junior College. My father, who by this time was not coaching anymore, he had moved up from being a coach to an athletic director to the dean. He was, by this time, he was the assistant to the president, whose name was J. J. Dr. J.J. Hayden. And so uh, David Sansing applied for a job teaching history at Perkinston, and my father hired him. Wow. So my dad gave David Sansing his first job. Well, he did a good thing. <laughs> he did a good thing. <laughs> he did a good there. thing for all of us. <laughs> and so Sansing taught at Perkinston uh, through all of the mid-60s 
and into, I believe he went to Ole Miss in 1970. Is that right? Well, interesting, yeah. He went to state first and was there for a year and oddly was hired by Ole Miss while he was at Mississippi State, which was unheard that, of no at the one, time. That never happens. And it was because he was so remarkable and so good at what he did. So he, wow, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. So I had yeah. missed out on that. Yeah. But when we left Boone, uh, Perkinston in 1965, when my dad became president at Northeast Community College, the Sansings moved into our house. Oh, wow. So they lived in the faculty housing. Uh, we first both lived in Stone, Stone Hall. We were, you know, we were residents uh, yeah. in Stone Hall. And then they moved into our house. So all the Sansing uh, kids and Lib and, and, and my family, my mom and dad, we all grew up. They're wonderful people. Together, they're all fine. of them. And so this book, uh, The Other Mississippi, uh, is a collection of, of essays and speeches. And I know there's the one speech in there, I believe it's in this book, that he gave at the centennial of the Capitol. That's exactly right. The, yeah. the, the state capitol. It's a yeah. wonderful speech. It's a know? fabulous speech. And he talks about what he can see over the horizon. And he's got that those great lines that... Mississippi has uh, more per capita Pulitzer Prize winners and NFL players than any state in the union. It's just classic David Sansing. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, that, that's great. So this book is just out, and unfortunately, uh, Dave's not around to enjoy it. But I'm sure that many uh, folks will want to get a copy and read it and, and, and kind of read his last. Yeah, and piece. what he did is he 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 got his greatest hits, but he also he he's got a lot of personality uh, profiles in here, people that you never knew about who were really influential in Mississippi history, uh, notably three or four African Americans that I'd never heard of who just did remarkable things uh, in in the late. Uh, uh, 19th century and 20th century. Mm -hmm. I think there's one place in there where he compares the lives of William Faulkner to the chef at Perkinston uh, College. Wow. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I won't try to <laughs> buy the book. Yeah. Get the book. The read other it. Mississippi. That's right. <laughs> it, it's a good one. So, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about how you got into this business of of writing and editing and publishing. How did you get interested in writing, and what are your earliest uh, sort of memories of, of sitting down and writing? Well, it's, it's interesting. I'd, I'd been a journalist and newspaper publisher for a long time, and I think just about anybody in that field dreams of writing the great American novel. And, you know, I, I think most people would rather be a writer than do what it takes to write. Mm. And so I really didn't have a whole hell of a lot to offer or say. And then got into real trouble as a young business person and, uh, and ended up uh, – uh, pleading guilty to one count of bank fraud. I, I was a decent writer, but a terrible business person. <laughs> and uh, and I was sentenced to a year in a federal prison, and it oddly just happened to be an experimental prison in Carville, Louisiana, with the last leprosy patients imprisoned uh, in the continental United States. So I spent a year uh, with those last Americans imprisoned for disease, an ancient order of nuns, a Franciscan monk, and 500 convicts, including Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer and the guy who gave Arnold Schwarzenegger his first steroids. So, um, <laughs> when, when I when I left, I thought, gosh, this is this is interesting. And I spent I'm kind of slow. It takes me a long time to connect the dots and figure out meaning. But but ultimately, you know, I got in trouble not because I was hoarding money, but because I was trying to maintain this facade of perfection, this image that I had everything together. 
and I was sent to the one place in America where outward image meant nothing. Mm-hmm. And the leprosy patients, although terribly disfigured physically, were leading these pretty monastic, dignified lives. And uh, so I started waking up every day, not like the writers who wake up every day and say, I got to write. I woke up every day thinking, I got to write this story. Mm-hmm. And this is Outcast. This is in the Sanctuary of Outcast. Yes. And and uh, it took you. You said fifteen years to to bring it to to fruition. And yes. and you you had a pub you had a a, a publisher or a well, agent or somebody I, I, who was I working an, with. Got you. an agent uh, late late in the game, but um, it was interesting. Uh, one of the things that one of the great benefits of living in Oxford is you have all these uh, creative writers who come there. Uh, frankly. Uh, first because of Willie Morris, and then second because John and Renee Grisham fund this Grisham writer-in-residence. So I was taking all these creative writing classes, and I was getting all this advice, make it a novel, turn it into a screenplay, make it a play. And so I experimented with different forms for a long time. And then I went to a workshop in Baltimore uh, where these two guys, Lee Goodkin and Denty W. Moore, Uh, are proponents of creative nonfiction, and that means telling a true story using the techniques of fiction, and that's when the clouds parted. I didn't need to create anything. The material was there. I just needed to craft it in a decent way, so that's how that came to be. And and this is where you adopted the the working habits of good nouns and verbs and very few adjective and adjectives and adverbs, right? And, and that was that was Barry Hanna's advice. But yes, that's and that that's that's in revision. I'm a I'm a big reviser. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a cliche now, but Anne Lamott talks about uh, the. Uh, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but the first draft, and everybody has a first yeah. draft. And and if you get through that and get it, then you can go back and revise and and make those. Uh, um, those sentences more crisp and more powerful and and packed with meaning and and so that's what I worked on all those years was revising. And uh, you spent a fair amount of time uh, w- with Barry Hanna who and Larry Brown and I'm sure some with Willie Morris as yeah. well the, the the big three of of our generation. Yeah, w- Willie had a crush on my mother early on. Uh, she was, <laughs> was div- divorced for the third time, so he was at the house a lot over eating. And she ended up marrying Ron Bourne, one of his best friends. Oh, so, yeah. So we Who were, wrote that little book about beginning, beginnings, beginnings and ends? Yeah. They, did they, you publish that? We did, yeah. That's a yeah. cool – another book I have on my desk. Yeah, it's a, it's a great one, yeah. And, and so – uh, you know, for me, Willie was a great inspirer. I, I had a small newspaper in Oxford then, and, you know, across the square, he would yell, Mr. Editor. I mean, you know. The <laughs> May guy I write your lead? Yeah, yeah. The, and he would call late at night and ask if I could find cold beer in Oxford. He would write a 500-word essay on the greatest dogs he's ever known. So we, we, were, we were buddies for a while. But the one who helped me the most with writing was Barry. Barry was uh, obviously a great writer, but he was a better teacher. Barry got tired of revising late in his life, and some of his work, although the sentences are inspired, the stories just never come together. But the way he talked about the art and the craft of writing is like nobody I've ever seen before or after, and he really encouraged me and and worked with me, and uh, I credit him with a great deal of uh, developing the craft in me. Mm. I remember Barry saying, someone asked him one time, like, you know, how do you write a great short story? And he says, well, first of all, you have to have the story to write. And second of all, it needs a beginning, a middle, and an end. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That's it. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today on this Sunday afternoon. Hope you're enjoying a beautiful day in the great state of Mississippi. I'm here with my buddy Neil White. No relation, unfortunately. However, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know that. I'm sure four, five, six generations back. We have the same last name. We do. You started in Gulfport. I started in Perkinston. You ended up in Oxford. I was in Boonville. Who knows? We could That's be right. cousins. That's right. I, I had a great-great-grandfather, Squire White, who was born during an Indian raid in the Alabama Territory, which was part of Mississippi. Yeah, so yeah. who knows? Could have been from back then. And, and I'm told my folks came up <clears throat> out of Mobile, okay. uh, so I don't know. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of genealogy. Have you? I, I have, yeah. You have? I'll pass it along to you. Maybe we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll figure that we'll, out. There may be. Yeah. If I do it, then they can marry them up and we can figure out. I'd love that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about writing and who your influences are and and kind of, you know, did you have a writer in the family? Is this something you watched other people do? I know you you tell a story about a book of your father's maybe you picked up. Yeah, yeah. um, It's interesting. My mother and father, uh, when they married, my mother's family, they were all teachers. So books were everything to them. I think my great-grandmother said to my mother as she went to college, "If, if you get a dollar, buy a book with 50 cents and give 50 cents to somebody who needs it more. I mean, wow. those, that was their, their kind of people. You yeah, know. Uh, my father's uh, side of the family was they were all lawyers and, and on one line, some industrialists, but they were, they were, they were always readers. We didn't have any writers per se, mm-hmm. but um, you know, they, they always encouraged it. I mean, I was always picking up uh, breakfast of champions that my dad had. Uh, and, and as a, as a 12 year old looking mm-hmm. at the illustrations alone, were just was great what Vonnegut did. But, um, it, it's really it's really interesting. I um I've I've sort of fallen into this memoir, uh, creative nonfiction, uh, personal essay genre that has been sort of the stepchild of literature for so long. I mean, there was you know before before the immersion journalist, the George Plimptons of the world, and you know Gonzo journalism, right. it was considered uh, beneath the writer to use the pronoun I. Mm. And and that has that has lingered. In fact, when I was working with Robert Kayat, which we mentioned before, he kept saying, "Could we could we use I less frequently? Could we use one? Could we?" And 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 it's uh, you know uh. it's it's a it's a terribly difficult thing. But um, what uh, of all the the writing uh, uh, genres out there, the personal essay is my favorite, and that that particular form is so intimate because it's almost as if the writer is whispering a secret into your ear and at its best saying that thing that nobody should be saying aloud. Mm-hmm. And, and you and, get to make a book out of it. <laughs> that's right. And so if somebody is willing to be that brave, and it takes some bravery to do it, to show that shadow side, to show that side of yourself when you were afraid, when you didn't know what to do, or even more so when you made a mistake and it impacted something, that's so powerful for a reader because that's that's when they can feel and experience that that common humanality that we all uh, want to experience in literature. And I believe this form is the best way to do it. 
you you know we we can't all be Faulkner. We can't we can't be Eudora Welty, but. I think we all can discover our own voice because we speak in it every day when we talk to our friends, mm-hmm. and that's what I get excited about. I often say that Mississippi is 2.9 million great storytellers. Absolutely. And we, technology came late to us. We were sitting around <laughs> on the front porch and at the kitchen table telling stories long before the movies and and the written books arrived in our homes, and I think it's something that we, we do really well. And you absolutely are sitting in the catbird seat as a publisher of Mississippi work. It's uh, it, I, I, I feel very fortunate. And, um, you know, there there's some other publishers around, University Press, which is a fabulous, fabulous press, and they've got the Willie Morris Memoir Award that they do. But they they tend to do more academic. I mean, they were mm-hmm. they were established to be a place for for professors to, to right. get their yeah. books published. So we we don't get first shot at everything, but a lot of people now who have good stories come to us uh, and explore the possibilities. And I have to uh, right now turn a lot of those away, not necessarily because we don't want to publish the book, but the writer's probably not ready to tell it in the best way that they can. What advice would you give someone who thinks they have a story uh, worth telling uh, and and they come knock on your door and, and 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 maybe maybe it's a good story maybe it's not maybe it needs help I mean what do you you must say no a lot to people who come and say I've got this great idea for a book we we, we do we do but but you know we we don't say no to people who have an idea we say no to people who have tried to write it and the, and the writing is not really where where we need it to be the problem is. So many people who tell great stories, like on the porch or uh, in public speaking, ninety percent is nonverbal. You can see the expression, that twinkle mm-hmm. in their eye. You can you can uh, tell when they're getting serious from their voice. And so, to translate on that to the page takes a, a special skill set. And when we I say discover your voice, that's the the voice that that the reader gets when they read your black, you know type yeah. on the white page and that takes some some work and so i would say and it's formulaic and there's some science behind it it's not just this magical artistic oh great speaker great thinker surely can write yeah no it's not right. that's a big piece of it there the, i think i think there's the art of creative writing and the craft of creative writing and you you can foster the art by reading great writing but you can learn the craft you mm-hmm. really can and uh-huh. Our great editor can lead you, right? Absolutely, yeah. And and I, I talk a lot about creating scenes. The best way you can convey to someone what happened is not tell them what happened, but put them in the room. I'll give you an example, if you don't mind. No, oh, I love that. Robert Kayak came in and he said, he wrote a sentence that was, you know, well-written, but he said, my first year's, second year's chancellor, we were reviewing Confederate symbols, and during that period, my family and I received death threats. Well, that's that's a, a powerful sentence, and you might have some empathy, but uh, I asked him to write about the first time he got it. And he wrote this scene, which is the opening scene in the book, where he's in his office, and a UPD officer said, Chancellor, you need to look at this. And he handed him a fax. This was back in the day yeah, when oh boy. people could fax threats and not be caught. <laughs> and he looked at the letter and said, uh, Dear Chancellor Kayat, I can tell from your name that you were not born in the United States of America. Oh, and he went Lord. into this diatribe, and then it ended, vilify us if you like, but we will spit on your grave. You will never see us coming. Your children will never see us coming. Mm. So and, he told it from that perspective. And he said to the officer, what do we do? And he said, first we call the FBI. 
then we figure out how to protect you and Margaret and your children. Sure. He created a scene. Yeah. And that's what great writing is. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about how you manage the creative side with the business side, the, the, the thing that I have to do a lot of and that you and I also share in common. We do. It's a, it's a terribly difficult thing because, um, you know, all art has its place. If we, if we said you shouldn't write unless you can win the Pulitzer Prize, that'd be like saying don't play tennis unless you can play at Wimbledon. I mean, people right. can write. That's fine. But if you're going to publish the book or uh, the movie or whatever else, you have to have some business sense. And so I, I hate to admit this, but the first question I have to ask is can we make money on this? Right. Equally important, but the second question is, is this work great or can it be made great? And if I don't ask the first question first, I get excited about the work over here and end up doing projects that lose money. And then, you know, I won't be around to publish any of these great stories. So it's it's really difficult. And mm-hmm. I, I say no to some really nice people with with great stories that they should probably self-publish and have for their family and friends. But uh I say no to, I don't want to exaggerate, but we probably, we probably say yes to one in 30, 40, 50 pitches. Wow. Well, I guess there's a great place now for self-publishing. It's, it's not as complicated as maybe it once was. Yeah. I self-published that little book of Instagrams that I did and sold a thousand copies. And I it was, was great. I was very pleased and content with that. And how much did you share with the publisher? Well, we uh, there was no publisher. That's, there, so you got was, to keep all the money. Every That's bit of it. Yeah. Right. Oh, and That's I got good. rich on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was profitable. Yeah, and it was a demonstration of 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 how enterprise works. That's right. That if you have a decent idea, and you can go out and shop it and put the business end of it together, market it, and show up and work it, you can sell a thousand books. If you if you sell. All the books that you printed, you're probably going to be uh, in the profit, and That's you're right. going to have had a very pleasant experience. That, that was mine anyway. It, it, it's exactly right. And you are in the top 1% of all best-selling authors in America <laughs> because 99% sell fewer than 1,000 copies. And that's Is that the truth. right? Yeah, but you know, last year, 789,000 books were self-published. Are and there too many books out there right now? It seems yeah. like everybody and their uncle, including me, has written and or published a book. It, it seems like we're just loading up on it in a time when you would think that this would be a dinosaur, that the written word and the bound copy would be something that, I mean, why would you go to the trouble? But yet there, there's just millions of them. And, and it's it's sort of a, a, a you know counterintuitive. Amazon particularly has made it so easy to self-publish books. And they treat a self-published book the same way they treat a book from HarperCollins. They promote it the same way. And so this technology makes it easier for people to self-publish a book. It might be bad. It might be poorly designed. It might be riddled with typos. But they can put that book on the shelf, and 200 years from now, a great-great-grandkid will see it. It's uh, like immortality. Uh-huh. And so to be able to—most people don't want to write a book. They just want to say, I have published a book, and <laughs> right. it's right there. There it is. And my name's on it. Yeah. You understand yeah. my book. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'd ask you if you weren't doing what you're doing now, which is writing and publishing and editing, what would you be doing? And you told me you would be a— Retired professional pickleball player. Yeah. It's, and I didn't know what pickleball was. Well, you're one of the last in America who doesn't know I what it is. I didn't know until yesterday what pickleball was. It's it, it's like 
full body ping pong. It is. It is. That's exactly. Kevin, you know what pickleball is? Okay. Yeah, of course. I guess I am the last person to know. It's got it's got the worst name of any sport could possibly possibly have. But it's, unless you grew up in Wiggins, Mississippi, which was the cap pickle capital of the world oh, you're as a right. child. That's right. So That's, it's a very it's a, a very like prideful it. thing. Good. Okay. So it's a great great name for a sport. <laughs> but it's uh, I haven't been as excited about any sport since I discovered racquetball in '75. It's uh, it's really fabulous. And uh, this is the arts hour, so I'm not going to go into it. But but you play pickleball. I love pickleball. I and play four times. Special courts for yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so it's it's kind of tennis for people who don't get around as much as they used That's to. That's right. People who have injured or aged out of racquetball, squash, tennis, this is this is the sport. And if you're a great ping pong player, that helps too. Well, I gotta find a place to play because I love ping pong. You are gonna be great at this. Well, Neil, thank you for coming by and sharing uh what may not seem to you like it, but it was a, an hour of your story. And we appreciate the work that you do. And uh, we're very proud of you. Uh, we love what Nautilus Publishing is doing. It keeps the art alive in many corners of the state, particularly the written word. Thank you. And uh, we always think of you as a good friend and the supporter of the Arts Commission. I, I am, and I love what y'all do. Well, thank you very much. And i um, glad you're here for the Book Festival, five years of the Mississippi Book Festival. I hope to see you next year at year six. I'll be right there. here at the state capitol for our Mississippi Book Festival. And that about does it for the Mississippi Arts Hour. Again, our guest today was Neil White from Oxford, Mississippi, Nautilus Press, and uh, New York Times bestselling writer, of the outcast, the full name. In the Sanctuary of Outcasts. In the Sanctuary. I just call it the Outcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you all next Sunday for the Mississippi Arts Hour.